this seems more like uh, discount suit shopping than pharmaceuticals. Welcome to the Inventive Health Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Stewart. We're listening today to the recording that I made earlier with Keith Kelly, head of the Pricing and Market Access Group at Inventive Health Consulting. Payers have become a bit more powerful these days. I would say that's probably an understatement. That has changed, has it not? It really has. I think for the far majority of the early part of my career, um, we really hadn't seen payers be a newspaper kind of issue. It wasn't often that market access was discussed on earnings call. And today, it really is. It's routinely discussed on earnings calls. It affects the valuation of small companies. It affects the valuation of very large companies. And that's something that's fundamentally different from the environment, even, say, two or three years ago. So payers are more powerful. What the heck happened to make them more powerful? Yeah, Jeff, a lot of people are asking that question. The first thing that started to happen is that payers started exercising controls that were fundamentally different from the controls that were exercised three or five years ago. When you say controls, you mean things like tier, product placement? What are you talking about when you yeah, say controls? Yeah, I, I mean tier and product placement. I mean specifically what has put payers in the fast lane, what has changed the environment so much is the use of exclusion lists. Exclusion lists? Yeah. So, you know, in the in the far distant past, the consequences of access were really maybe a small copay differential. Mm-hmm. We didn't see many active restrictions. And then slowly but surely, we saw more step therapies, double step therapies, categories getting managed. What changed in the last two years and specifically changed in hep C is the use of exclusion lists, whereby if you're off formulary, you're not getting any coverage or coverage in a extremely difficult appeals-driven environment. But in actuality, it's really like no coverage. So we see exclusion lists, but we didn't see them often, if at all, prior to a few years ago. They could have excluded products, but didn't. Why not? Well, that's a great question. One of the reasons that companies don't exclude products, meaning Aetna Cigna Coventry as companies, they're required by their state department of insurance in many cases to cover, in quotation marks, pretty much any product that has an FDA approval. Mm -hmm. And they put restrictions and other impairments in front of that. But when you have products that are considered very clinically similar, they can appeal that and they can ask for permission to full out exclude a product through a non-coverage situation or an NDC block. They literally block out the product at the pharmacy. So you could still purchase the product, but you'll be paying out of your pocket instead of through your insurer. So it strikes me that this is part of almost the um, downside of the sort of molecular biology revolution we've had is that targets became what everybody knew about. Targets were easy to find. You didn't have necessarily a compound that would hit the target, but you knew the target. And so you design a compound to hit the target. When you do that, you have built-in competition. You've built-in MeToo products. Right. The, the analogy we use is that a lot of product categories are sort of like where you're meeting a high unmet medical need. Mm-hmm. Sort of like opening a lemonade stand in the desert. And then when you have competition, open a lemonade stand right next to you. In a lot of prior categories where that had happened, there was more price discipline that was exercised between the competitors. And now we've seen the erosion of price discipline among some top-name pharma companies. You mentioned hepatitis C earlier. The lemonade stand in the desert seems like a really appropriate analogy there. It's It's hard to go through to be a payer person and not talk about hepatitis C and almost use it as a buzzword, but you really can't go very far and not see it happening. And we're, we're hearing a lot of our payer customers express to us that those types of techniques and tactics that were used in hepatitis C are going to be brought to other categories. And those techniques and tactics were 
are really the exclusion list. I mean, that's their favorite tool right now. That's the um, that's the hammer of choice, and everything looks like a nail, and it's a really easy policy. And by the way, they've been effective. They have managed through the pressure that they're applying to pharma companies now to substantially drive up the average gross to net discounts that they are able to extract. So it is the pendulum has swung to the extent to which it'll swing back. Hard to say at this point. So if we talk about gross to net discounts, the gross price that you wish to charge, the net price that you do get. And in between includes things like how much you pay the payer to let you be on formulary at all, it sounds like, not even just a good tier, but at all on formulary. That's exactly right. Courtesy of Credit, there's a good report out there, if anybody's interested, which shows the rise in rebates or discounts as a percentage of gross pharma sales. And in a six-year time frame or six-year period, we've seen average gross to net discounts go from 20% to 32% sort of going from a buy four, get one free kind of model to almost a buy two, get one free. Joseph A. Banks. Exactly. This is this seems more like uh, discount suit shopping than pharmaceuticals. Companies with a high exposure to diabetes, where there's a number and a clear target, there have been rebate levels that exceed 40 or 50%, as you can see from the average gross to net discounts exceeding those levels. So it's a um, it's really an interesting environment for pharma right now. And it has the change has taken place quite rapidly. So quite rapidly, just to kind of underscore that, the gross to net discount was about 20% back in 2007. And on average, by 2010, we were about at the 25%, 26% discount rate. And then by 2013, we're above 30%, not at 30%, but above 30%. On average, some therapeutic areas really being um, more than one free for each one you sell. And when you talk about these kinds of drugs and the kind of exposure that it has to the stock price, the stock price is built in on growth and <laughs> earnings. And when the earnings just take a complete cut right off the top, that could be half your earnings on the drug because your cost of goods sold might run 27, 24%, that range. You have marketing and manufacturing. That's another 10%, 10%. So it's roughly, just roughly speaking, just under 50% is stuff that you just don't avoid. So instead of uh, having profits that they had expected in the, say, uh, let's say that just for purpose of argument, it was 25%. Instead, they're getting 6% of it, their profit. It's an amazing change. And there was once a, a saying amongst trade folks, which was AWP stands for ain't what's paid. <laughs> And we got over to whack, but maybe the saying now should be ain't even close to what's paid. And again, the AWP is more related to gives and buys between pharmacies and retail. But when you think about this, it's going to have a big effect on pharma companies and biotech companies. And the payers can extract these profit concessions from the innovators because of the exclusion lists. If you don't pay up, you're excluded from formulary. That's right. And so it's it's really an interesting dynamic of, I think, what, when you say, why did it happen? I think Steve Miller started it, and a lot of other health plans quickly adopted and copied the behavior. Yeah, this reminds me of the prisoner's dilemma, the, this idea that you have two prisoners in a room, and the first one that betrays gets a short sentence. The other one that doesn't betray gets a very long sentence, or neither one could betray, and they'd both be pretty good. They'd both be let go with a no sentence at all, but is that what's happening here? Well, yes, but then the question I would ask is why hasn't it happened before and why is it happening now? One of the other things that you can't help but think about is the state of employer-sponsored coverage. 
So one of the hypotheses that we have, um, we being a technical term for paired dorks like myself, you can say that on your podcast, is that it wasn't really tolerable for health plans to come to an employer and say, I am not going to cover this drug. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago, that was sort of not something that was tolerable within the landscape. And as patient benefits have eroded, as U.S. coverage has really eroded and become less robust, yep. employers have become a little bit more accustomed to saying, I'm comfortable with my PBM doing its job. PBM is a pharmacy benefits manager. Exactly. A PBM doing its job and aggressively managing the costs of pharmacy benefits. That's really the control that has been lifted. You did see health plans defect, but they defected over to a better product. But what didn't happen is that you heard employers say that this was completely unacceptable and inappropriate. Yeah. And that's really the key, right? So where does this stop? I, I don't really know. I think it's probably the case that you're going to see health plans be excited, like a kid with a new toy, about the opportunity to bring the strategy to the other areas where they're trying to control costs. I would have thought from the outside that HCV would have been a special case. It would not have been the new toy, but would have been the toy for this one odd occurrence of we have a lot of patients, they've been waiting around for these drugs, they're finally here and they've got to use them now. And so it's hard to think of a case where a pharmaceutical company wouldn't be more incentivized to make a deal right now. They've got to get their patients now before they're cured, and once they're cured, they are gone. It's a really good point, and that's part of it. I think that's definitely a contributing factor. But a disease that has incredible effects on the patient and a drug therapy that's literally curative is not one where we should have seen this discount. Let me just take an example and illustrate why I find HCV so interesting. There have been two independent analyses. Mm -hmm. One of them was run by CVS. And this analysis showed that on a cost-per-quality basis, so that's cost-per-quality-adjusted life year, was delivering $12,400 per quality-adjusted life year. That's a pretty good number. Mm -hmm. the, the benchmark in the U.K. is 30,000 pounds per quality. Yep. In the U.S., we consider uh, $50,000 to be a good number cost per quality. And those are pretty close to the same number. If I think it's a, about 1.4 pounds to dollar right now. Right. So the U.S. is not really a quality market. So there's probably a couple of people who are listening in and saying, why are we focused on qualities? Well, it gives you a good reference point for the value of a medication. Mm -hmm. And so if we consider the $50,000 number to be good, mm -hmm. let's consider that like a four-minute mile. If you break $50,000, it's like running a four-minute mile. Down at $25,000, you're running a two-minute mile. And down at 12400 it's the equivalent of running a one-minute mile. This drug that payers managed to get 46% GTN discounts on was one of the most cost-effective drugs that we've ever seen. I mean, it's really shocking. Why did they feel as though they had to do it, or did they just think that they could do it, and they finally decided to do it because of that? Well, I think that comes down to the competitive prisoner's dilemma, right? It doesn't matter how cost-effective your drug is if there's another drug right next to it that is just as cost-effective. Okay. And so, in my opinion, the thing that caused the HCV category to have the competitive dynamics that it had was time. Products launch at, you know, a veritable instant of one another, mm -hmm. and it's, it's not really a chronic medication. It's a curative medication. That's the real problem, right? So, as a result, there's not an installed base of patients. If you pick a preferred product, if you pick one over the other, there's not an installed base of patients that are going to be upset. 
they're going to be pleased that their HCV is being cured as they should be. So that's one of the places really interesting here is that there was really quite limited disruption. So in an area that you should have had high advocacy support, mm -hmm. in an area where you could have had high patient disruption, in an area you had high value proposition, going into this, all of the all of the measurables would have suggested that this would not be the place to see major GTN concessions. What this shows is that the competitive dynamics can drown out all of those causes. We're talking next about how consolidation has changed uh, the entire story. What is the consolidation story, and how does that change what a payer can do? What has changed in the payer landscape is that a relatively small number of payers now control the majority of the U.S. insured lives. So consolidation among payers is the driver here. Absolutely, and it, it affects the behavior of the deals desk at a pharma company that's responsible for responding to these situations, right? So a deals desk is given the charge of, do we want to maintain pharmacy's benefit preference here? Do we want to avoid an exclusion list? They seem like decisions that, of course, yeses, but they come at that cost. So the deals desk sort of manages that. And what has changed is that good managed care departments 10 years ago would have a philosophy of, you're not going to win them all. Mm -hmm. And you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. And when there are 30, 40, 50 important payers, that's more easy to tolerate. Okay, I lost a health plan with 3 million lives. It hurts, but it doesn't change. You lose a PBM with 50 million lives. You lose a PBM with 25 million lives. You lose a national health plan with 15 million lives. Big chunks of the company are now, or excuse me, big chunks of the country are now almost not promotable. And it's not as if we can get through those restrictions with our, our simple copay assistance. These are active controls, if not exclusions. One of the reasons for the behavior that we're seeing is that it's becoming less and less tolerable for pharma companies and biotech companies to not have access, because the consequences of not having access are much more difficult to tolerate. And it doesn't really matter how big the company is, right? No. Uh, the economics are perfectly symmetric for big companies and little companies. Um, it's the same basic calculus that they have to employ, which is either I have to tell Wall Street that I've invested in a discount that they weren't expecting, or I have to tell Wall Street that a big chunk of the country or a national plan doesn't reimburse me or doesn't cover me. And as a result, either way, I'm giving my investors bad news. It's sort of a pick-your-poison kind of situation. So if we think about unions against large company, that's a, a balanced force at least. But it sounds as though pharmaceutical companies just don't have the balance back. As long as they have a competitor with another lemonade stand in the desert, somebody can say, you can go to this lemonade stand, but not that one. And what is a pharma company to do? I certainly hope not, but I think about it. One of the big questions that we're going to be asking, the next big question is, how do I drive sustainable market access? What does sustainable market access look like? That's a question that we sort of have to, have to really begin to think about. This is where the U.S. in some ways looks less attractive than some ex-U.S. markets from a discounting perspective. What do you mean by that? That, no, that is a surprise to me, a complete surprise, quite well, honestly. Well, we're not there from a rebate perspective, but at least in other markets, first-to-market status has a certain established value. And every other product that launches thereafter has an amount of reimbursement that they can expect. Take a market like France. In the US, if you're going to be in that prisoner's dilemma slash price war, there's no controls. So in some ways, the US is a dramatically better market. In some ways, the US is now a radically evolving market. 
And it's not unrealistic to say that that corridor that you see where U.S. drugs are, generally speaking, getting better margins for pharma companies than other countries is obviously going to be narrower. And that's the lesson that we learned. And, and I think that you're going to have to talk about sustainable market access in a meaningful way. If you have these situations where two or three of the exact same product or very similar products are going to launch at the same time. We talk about sustainable market access. Tell me what sustainable market access is. I thought it was. Well, if you figure it out, let me know. Um, I think sustainable market access begins with having a strong understanding of the competitive dynamics that your product's going to launch into. And also understanding that focusing your R&D efforts in areas that are going to likely generate not just an approval, but a commercializable, reimbursable product. Mm-hmm. is really what is sustainable. I think those are sustainable aspects of market access. The other problem is effective engagement of government. If you think about HCV, you're preventing a lot of costs that the government ultimately would have accrued. Mm-hmm. Uh, liver transplants, liver cancer. Obviously, those are areas that are you know very direct linkages, and when those things happen, they generally happen in a Medicare population. So the investment that employers are making now is actually accruing into Medicare. And that's a problem. Well, it's not a problem for the government, but it is going to be a problem Mm -hmm. for sustainable market access. So what that means is if you had another opportunity to launch a product that was going to have a tremendous value proposition for Medicare, maybe you have to be engaged with Medicare early. The policy side of the house becomes so important. And the advocacy side of the house becomes so important. It's not just enough to be approved, but you have to be able to identify if you have a great drug and it's going to do a great thing, it's going to translate into a savings. In this case, it's going to translate into a savings for government and Medicare, but not for the commercial payers that are being asked to pay for it now. So the the ask on our side, and the pharmaceutical company that wins in the future in this way is going to win by making sure that policy changes so that the savings is recognized by the payer, or at least the pain is being recognized by the payer. Therefore, they'd be willing to pay for the, the drug product that costs much less. Is that, am I understanding correctly what, uh, what we're advocating? Correct. It's really the process of not leaving value on the table. And there's a lot of value that's created by products today that is not being captured. And there's probably products today that are not creating value that are capturing um, value. It's an imperfect system. But if you have one of those products with a very clear, transparent value proposition, there has to be measurement of aspects of the product that save costs, that create efficiencies, and a way of capturing the value that your product creates. And that hasn't been an issue before. It's an issue now. So uh, absent being able to go out and lobby and get the sort of policy changes that you would like to see, what can a pharmaceutical company do? I think it's it's building a, a better product profile and having aspects of that product profile that more clearly connect to longer-term outcomes. And looking at those measures, even if they're not going to materialize in the time frame of a study, but establishing that those are the right measures, I think, is a big part of it. I think another part of it has to be the case that pharma companies get closer to patients, has to be part of the value creation equation. It's one of the things that really surprises me about how our industry operates um, is the extent to which pharma companies use wholesalers and distributors and push product out and have a minimal feedback loop in terms of what that product does. They put product on shipping pallet, it goes to PCPs, it goes to retail pharmacies, and it it ultimately produces an outcome that's hard to measure. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is obviously there's a very there's a clear political aspect to what we're talking about today, Jeff. But if people are blushing about 
drug prices, and probably rightfully so in some areas. They'd be absolutely amazed by the amount of money that pharma companies leave on the table due to non-adherence. So one way of moving the pharmaceutical bottom line is to raise prices, which is a strategy that pharma companies have taken. The data would prove that out. But maybe another strategy is getting closer to the patient and solving some of these products as opposed to pushing the product into the wind. Well, thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure to have you here. This has been the Inventive Health Podcast. If you have comments or questions, you may leave them at podcast at inventivehealth.com. It's the equivalent of running a one-minute 